This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. The tipping point for EVs has happened. The equivalence uh, in terms of economics is right there today, or it, it's within months. There will be challenges. There'll be huge challenges, but we're past the tipping point. That's Russell Hensley, a co-leader of the McKinsey Center for Future Mobility in the Americas. He's here to tell us what's getting in the way of widespread production and adoption of electric cars. After, hear CEO of Fortune Media, Alan Murray, talk about his search for the soul of American business in an excerpt from our Author Talk series featuring his book, Tomorrow's Capitalist. Russell, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Roberta, thank you. Really briefly, what's keeping suppliers from producing more electric vehicles? And in turn, what's keeping consumers from driving them? I think it's probably a multi-billion dollar question, to frame it correctly. Uh, we are certainly in the decade of the EV. 99.9% of vehicles are powered by internal combustion engines, and the side effect is the uh, emissions of carbon. It's quite complex to actually design, develop, and produce at scale electric vehicles when you are so dominated by the internal combustion engine and all the systems in the world for mobility have been indexed towards internal combustion engine. So what are some of those complexities? If you think about the forces at work on the industry, regulation is one, um, economics is another, technology is another, and then the consumer has to appreciate and adopt the new technology. If it wasn't for the regulators, we probably wouldn't be talking about electric vehicles today. We've got regulation that promotes the adoption of electric vehicles. So secondly, the technology, what we've seen over the last uh, 20, 30 years is the adoption of mobile electronics. And with that, the development of batteries and energy storage. And that application has actually paved the way for huge advances in energy storage and batteries that are suitable for applications in vehicles. So, you know, we've got a combination of regulators needing to reduce carbon, electric vehicles being part of the solution, and batteries being a very, very important part of the electric vehicle. What's keeping consumers from driving them? There is a hesitation in pivoting from something that is so trustworthy in the internal combustion engine to something that is a relatively new technology. And, you know, with vehicles being the, the second largest investment that you're going to make as a, as a household, it's, it's obviously a very conservative decision. How popular is EV adoption globally? What are the data around EV adoption uh, across, the, across the globe? I think if you take the, the global lens, you know, electric vehicle adoption differs quite significantly, I would say, by region. You have uh, Europe and China, which have got similar adoption rates in terms of volume, you know, around 15 to 20% of new vehicles sold over the last 12 months in Europe, as an example, have been electric. Uh, but then in the US, we, we have tended to be uh, a lot lower in terms of adoption. So it's, it's sub 5%. 
of new vehicle sales are actually electric. Now, there's a number of reasons why that is the case. If you look at the makeup of new vehicles sold in the US, uh, a large proportion of them are actually trucks. Over 55, 60% of the new vehicle sales are either pickup trucks or SUVs, which are quite a challenge to electrify. So the demand is there for electric trucks and SUVs. How does the industry need to respond? It's somewhat easier to make the physics work with a smaller vehicle, uh, which will require a smaller battery and has different demands based on the use cases uh, than it is for, a, for, say, a pickup truck. Now, that is changing and changing quite quickly when you have the introductions of electric pickup trucks within the next 12 to 18 months from the Detroit 3, be that Ford, be that General Motors, um, be that, as they're called today, Stellantis, in terms of their uh, high-selling pickup trucks are all getting an electric derivative, which will begin to accelerate the adoption, assuming that consumers and small business owners adopt those electric trucks. That will see a, a significant uptake to something like, you know, towards the end of the decade, Roberta, we're talking about half of the new vehicles sold in the U.S., which is typically around 17.5 million units a year, half of that being electric. And therefore, we will be catching up with the other regions around the world. We may lag at this point, but I think it's probably going to change once you get the electrification of the more popular models in the U.S. I want to talk a little bit about batteries. And pun intended, it seems as though batteries are the uh, sort of the core challenge and also the core opportunity. But I know that there are challenges to battery production. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's been so hard for manufacturers and producers to source the raw materials or generate the batteries as quickly as as we probably need to. You have to have the production facilities to build not only the vehicles, but also the batteries that go into the vehicles, and that's where the gigafactories come online. Gigafactories have a tremendous appetite in terms of raw materials, and those raw materials, the source of those raw materials, um, as mentioned, they, they come from often challenging places in the world, and that has to be you know, addressed either through links within the ecosystem between the industry and mines, or a uh, very creative way of recycling the materials that exist on the road. So what are the challenges associated with the use of batteries in electric vehicles? Energy storage and, and batteries are not new by any means. I think the, the challenge when you put them into the automotive application is just the magnitude of the battery. It's a large energy storage device that goes through multiple cycles or will go through multiple cycles in its life and contains some very precious metals. But ensuring that the chemistry is stable and ensuring that the the uh, the battery can go through the cycles and the multiple cycles of charging and discharging over the life of a vehicle, which a typical vehicle will last 16, 17 years uh, in the US, is a tall order. And therefore, again, we're still in our infancy. This is the decade of the EV. Uh, we will see this adoption go from the you know sub-5% up to the 50% of new vehicle sales. 
and gradually penetrate the fleet because battery costs have come down significantly. Now, with the popularity and the increase in demand for electric vehicles, so goes the demand for the raw materials that go into the battery, which creates another challenge that some of these materials are very costly and not necessarily in abundance in certain parts of the world, or they're only in abundance in certain parts of the world, which, which makes it quite challenging for the US and energy independence, if you will, if you think about the bigger picture. So what can you tell us about the cost of the batteries being used in electric vehicles? McKinsey started modeling battery costs back in 2007, 2008, in terms of batteries, we were looking at twelve, thirteen hundred dollars per kilowatt hour, and you know if you have a a battery of significance, this would dictate that you know the battery itself would cost thirty, forty thousand dollars at that point in time, which just you know the economics just aren't feasible. Now today, what's happened, just given the investments and the advances in technology and the move to what is lithium iron today, which is the popular uh, chemistry of choice, we see battery costs that are, you know, somewhere between 100 and $150 per kilowatt hour, depending on whether you're looking at the cell level or the pack level. But that is a, you know, it's a tenfold decrease, which shows the huge advances in technology, which enables you to put a battery in a, in a vehicle and the unit economics of that vehicle to make sense. Now, again, that's easily said. Russell, what can the EV industry as a whole do to address issues related to sustainability? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a case of not only the gigafactory finding a solution, I think it's the industry finding a solution. One of the, one of the tricks will be uh, to ensure that we can uh, reuse the materials that are actually going into vehicles. So the the amount that you reuse or recycle, uh, be that from the battery, be that from the body, be that from other elements of the vehicle, needs to be um, significantly uh, increased such that we reuse the materials as opposed to continually taking them out of the ground. Uh, that is that is you know an absolute key. Uh, to success such that the you know the industry becomes a huge adopter of the circular economy which you know helps move uh, mobility of people and goods towards you know the, the the wonderful goal of net zero emissions given all the challenges that um, that the players in the EV ecosystem face how can they start to remove some of these obstacles um, what what can they do to ensure that all the players in the ecosystem are sort of moving their agendas forward? There's a number of things that have to happen. Number one, you have to design, develop, and produce a range of models that consumers find appealing. And that is increasingly the case. We mentioned the uptake of different segments like pickup trucks in the U.S., which are very, very popular. And you will have to have electric pickup trucks if, you know, there is going to be full adoption. Secondly, those models have to be economically viable for the industry. And what does that mean? Uh, it means that the, the cost of the battery have to be at a certain point where the unit economics basically pencil out and you actually make money on electric vehicles. 
that, to my earlier point, has been quite challenging as we've been at higher levels on the battery cost curve, which are now coming to be at a point where you've got equivalence between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine in terms of the economics for the um, for the for the industry. And then thirdly, on that point, you have to have the talent that knows how to design and develop these vehicles. Batteries, electric motors, uh, software systems that basically run the vehicle are all, again, relatively new. And the talent that, uh, that needs to be developed and you know those capabilities that go with that talent need to be built up within the industry. The dealer network and the education of the dealer in selling an electric vehicle, which is completely different. The charging infrastructure to give the consumer confidence that they can charge at home, at work, independently, um, but never have range anxiety, uh, which is something that we've had in the in the early days. But there's there's an education that's required of the consumer, and then there's a whole new you know new set of protocols that you need for people like fire departments that deal with accidents, and you know dealing with a an electric vehicle that's had a crash and got a chance of a thermal event uh, is a whole new training that the safety folks have to go through. So, you know, the ecosystem is is quite extensive uh, when you begin to think about it. And it starts with a with an incentive, which is what you're seeing from, again, some of the regulations that have been released over the last 12, uh, 24 months that apply to charging infrastructures, apply to purchase incentives, those kinds of things. That was one of my questions, Russell, was the role of governments, utilities, um, how, how can they help accelerate the development of a network for charging electric vehicles? Are there other levers they can use or other ways that they can get folks fully on board with EVs? I think that the way to create a tailwind and, and, and expand the infrastructure is, you know, rightly so, uh, you're going to have to incentivize it because it's a very you know, expensive proposition. Um, it's not necessarily obvious if, where, and when you build out a charging infrastructure. The answer to those questions probably depends on the, the use case that you're trying to address, you know, whether it's a fleet of vehicles, whether it's a retailer trying to serve you know, the consumers or serve the, the fleet of vehicles that that's delivering groceries these days, it's quite complex. And again, it, it, it will require some quite significant funding at the end of the day to ensure that we have the coverage that's required in a, you know, a very different world to one where, you know, there's a gas station on most corners where you can go and fuel your vehicle in kind of eight to 10 minutes and, and have a reasonably full tank and go and drive 400 miles plus. You know, we talk a lot about, particularly nowadays, about talent gaps, talent shortages. What are the skills gaps right now um, around electric vehicles? Most industries, there is this digitization of the the product and, and multiple processes. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to software and having the talent that understands, you know, how to, how to engineer the software uh, really, and that's you know from from an industry that has been a hundred years fundamentally based around mechanical systems and some electrical systems. Now it's pivoting to software-driven vehicles that have uh, multiple electrical systems and 
supported biomechanical systems. What we've seen some of the best practice companies do is they will do several things. You know, they'll they'll make an anchor hire, you know, a high profile software engineer, whether she or he, you know, had a, a, a storied career and build around that anchor person. That would be one one strategy. The second one is you actually acquire, look for companies that are software companies that are potentially up for sale and you acquire those companies. And then the, the, the third piece of the, of the puzzle is instead of using humans to design your software, you actually use machines. I think a combination of those three things is probably the way that, uh, that, that, that you address the challenge. So Russell, thinking about how electric vehicles are produced versus um, traditional vehicles, what are the key differences, if any? There are several fundamental differences. Probably the most obvious one is that one is powered by an engine, uh, an internal combustion engine on the traditional side. And then, you know, on the electric vehicle side of things, there is a battery, there is an electric engine. In its simplest form, uh, electric vehicles are are probably more efficient in terms of production. You don't necessarily need the same amount of labor hours to assemble because there are fewer components and there are fewer moving parts. Uh, obviously, you know you have a battery which is uh, weighs a lot and and obviously is an integral part of the of the design of the chassis actually of the of the vehicle. And therefore, you know, is is a little bit awkward to produce, but uh, you know, the systems that we have in place obviously work around that. What are the implications for, say, big three manufacturers who are used to doing things one way, and now have to shift to a kind of a different model? The plain and simple implication is they have to pivot fundamentally to applications that are going to come through an infotainment system which is either a screen or a, you know, a series of speakers around the vehicle. And ultimately, this is you know, a few years down the road, but when you move to vehicles that you don't necessarily need to drive yourself, then, again, what do you have? You, know, you are something that's moving from A to B, and you can do in that vehicle whatever you want with the time. You know, so you can use it in a productive manner. You can use it in a way to to catch up on some sleep or whatever pertains but that is an incredible opportunity vehicles will be much safer they will be crashless right they won't crash because of again the technology and the advances that we have so it 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 all moves towards huge societal benefits in terms of reduced carbon emissions and far safer vehicles so we have you know far fewer accidents and far fewer fatal accidents. If you're looking into your crystal ball, when do you think we might reach the tipping point for electric vehicles? The tipping point for EVs has happened. The equivalence uh, in terms of economics is is right there today, or it, it's within months. There will be challenges. There'll be huge challenges, but we're past the tipping point. And to give it a huge tailwind, there's also... Um, one huge element that favors electric vehicles, which is the total cost of ownership is beneficial for people that run fleets. And so folks that have companies that are small fleets or medium-sized fleets or even large fleets, it's far more beneficial to actually have an electric fleet, assuming that you have the charging infrastructure and the vehicles are reliable and fit your use case, 
it's it's the economics are beneficial. So there is huge demand. Actually, there is a shortage of supply of small and medium duty vehicles to move goods. I don't want to feed the hype cycle around EVs, but autonomous vehicles, because you'd mentioned that just now as a kind of an area that we've been investing in. What do you think? If you think about autonomy and autonomous vehicles, I think that is a, a slightly different point because you know, whenever you're talking about autonomy, it's very dangerous unless you talk about the use case and you talk about the level of autonomy. But what I think you're referring to is kind of level four, level five, which in layman's terms means hands off and mind off. So you are not engaged at all in the direction or the speed of of the vehicle. My trip to Canada would be completely anxiety-free. I would just be sitting back. It would be anxiety-free because it would also figure out where that charging station is. So all you have to do is um, is pack your uh, you know your cheese and Branston sandwiches and you're all set. Maybe maybe throw in a bottle of ginger beer to wash down those cheese and Branston sandwiches. And now you're going to ask me what Branston is, aren't you? But anyway, it's 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 like Marmite, but it's not. I don't know what Marmite is either, though. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! It's a yeah. Marmite is a uh, is is a a delicious salty savory spread um, i'm not sure what the uh, what the marketing folks would think of that <laughs> but um <laughs> autonomy and autonomous vehicles it depends what the situation is right so we expect autonomy for you know on street parking it's kind of here today in terms of uh, we'll see it grow that's l4 autonomous on street parking you know next couple of years it will be there on scale. Parking garages, very similar. Highway pilots, urban pilots for passenger cars. We see that more, uh, you know, on the urban side, it's probably going to be within the 26 to 28, depending on which geography you're in again, you know, so it's, it's a few years out. And then, you know, if we're looking at driverless on highway trucks, you're looking at a similar time frame. you know, the 27, 28, depending on the geography. You have some regions that are a little bit more conservative in terms of the regulations than others, and some that are really leaning into autonomy because, you know, again, going back to your, your question and your point on talent, we have a shortage of, of drivers for trucks. And, uh, you know, autonomy is, is one of the solutions to, uh, to help ease that challenge. You've given me and our listeners lots to think about. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Wonderful. Roberta, thank you so much. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe in a few years we'll be talking about cars that run on Marmite. Who knows? <laughs> thank you so much, Russell. Thank you. If the future of the electric car is the autonomous vehicle, then the future of company priorities may well be social responsibility. Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media and author of the book Tomorrow's Capitalist, explains why. The change that I started noticing over the course of the last decade was in the way that business leaders were talking about their companies and how they led their companies. Starting about a decade ago, I started to hear a different emphasis about the social impact of business. There was a broad sense 
that companies weren't doing as much as they needed to to ensure their positive impact on society. Uh, and, and that's really what finally exploded a couple of years ago in this stakeholder capitalism movement. All of us know there are thousands of ways in the short term that you can enhance a company's profit at the expense of society, at the expense of employees, at the expense of the long-term uh, uh, survival of the company. I do think as companies focus more and more on wanting to be around for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 100 years, those things start to disappear. You realize that you can't be a successful company if the planet's on fire. You can't be a successful company if social division is causing the political order to break down. As a journalist who was always trying to get CEOs to talk about controversial issues, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they were not going to talk about social or controversial political issues that didn't directly affect their company. And I would say that started to change maybe six or seven years ago. Mark Benioff of Salesforce was one of the leaders in this movement when he spoke out against the religious liberties law in the state of Indiana uh, that was seen as, as, as being uh, discriminatory towards uh, uh, towards gays and, and transgender people, but you've seen an explosion of it. And, and in some ways, the most striking example is the one that just happened. Uh, uh, Putin invades Ukraine and within 15 days, you had 300 companies who had come out and said, we're not gonna do business anymore. I think what CEOs are learning is that the option of just saying nothing is going away. It really has just happened in the last six or seven years. A lot of the company, a lot of companies are still trying to figure out how to make their way through that thicket of issues. That question about globalization is one of the most interesting questions about the future of business. I mean, if you look at the, the last quarter of the 20th century, this is where a lot of these companies gained their success and their heft and their profits was from pursuing an active policy of globalization. And now we've had about a decade of retreat. Uh, and I think the war in Ukraine only adds to that and the issues I'm talking about only add to that. And so there is a question about can these companies stand for globalization and at the same time support their own own values? I think that's going to be one of the big tensions of the future. I was having a conversation last week with the, the CEO of one of the big four accounting firms. He said even in their tax work, uh, it used to be just a question of what are we allowed to do? And in the last couple of years, more companies have been saying, what's the moral thing to do? What's the right thing to do? What should we do? Not just what does the law allow us to? So I think these pressures are not going to be reversed and companies are going to have to figure out how, how to deal with them. I'm skeptical because I'm a journalist at heart, but I'm convinced that something very real is going on. In March of 2020, when the pandemic did hit and companies realized that the economy was going to take a sharp move downwards, my first instinct was to say, oh, all this stakeholder capitalism stuff is going to go out the window because people are going to be afraid of the bottom line and the effects on the bottom line. What stunned me was the exact opposite happened, that the pandemic in a way was a stakeholder crisis. We have to make sure our people are safe and our customers are safe. And so I think that was probably the moment where I said, wow, this, this is real. This is not ephemeral. This is not a fad. 
This is a dynamic driven by fundamental business forces, and it's not going to go away. It may not solve our problems as quickly as we needed to, but it's not going away. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.